Hello, my name is Sean Rack. I am a documentary director and um, one of our films, White Boy, is now on the Netflix top 10 movies in the US. We're gonna look like businessmen deliver packages. Money, money, money. Only us and you will know it's drugs. Okay. Anybody who's in possession of over 650 grams of cocaine, mandatory life. White Boy Rick. His name is Richard Wershey Jr. I was like, who was this white kid, you know, that was supposedly running all these black gangs and, and running the city of Detroit? And when you're 17 years old and you're moving kilos, you're at a, a status of drug dealer that most 17-year-olds don't reach. Why would a juvenile, nonviolent drug offender be kept in prison beyond 29 years? I found out that the reality was much different than the legend. And I knew that there were corrupt police officers involved in this thing. Coleman Young is the most powerful politician in the history of Detroit, and his niece was Kathy Volson, and she was married to Johnny Curry, one of the biggest drug dealers in Detroit. Everybody, every police officer down at 1300 was crooked. If you're a criminal, I would advise you never to get a nickname. So they said, we got to kill that white boy. <laughs> Law enforcement created almost the perfect criminal. The war on drugs is over, and drugs won. There's still a lot of angry people in the city of Detroit, in positions of power. I did way more than he could possibly have done to get that kind of a sentence. Third world countries don't incarcerate like this. You're not trying to tell me that you're an angel, that you never did anything wrong, are you? I've been involved in wrongdoing, but I don't feel I did anything to receive a life sentence. That is a trailer from the documentary White Boy, now on Netflix. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. And today we're talking about Richard Wershe Jr., a.k.a. White Boy Rick the subject of the latest true crime doc that landed on Netflix at the beginning of April, talking to us about the tragic circumstances surrounding white boy Rick's over 30-year incarceration for a nonviolent offense is Sean Rick, the award-winning director and producer of White Boy. So, Sean, welcome to Factual America. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you on. The film is White Boy, which actually, well, was done in 2017. Uh, has it been released a few times? Because it's definitely on Netflix now, um, as of April 2021. But have you have you been on Netflix before, or has it been there and many we just haven't noticed? Or no, it, well, it's been there worldwide. They, Netflix worldwide is a very different animal. It's it, they act they, they run like different companies. So our foreign distribution is all through Cineflix, uh, based in Ireland. And uh, they have a Toronto office. So they did a wonderful job of getting TV deals for White Boy uh, throughout, I mean, just throughout the world. I mean, they've dubbed yeah. it in German. Uh, it's on, you know, Foxtel in Australia and New Zealand. It's been, it's been licensed all over the place. And it's been on Netflix in Europe, um, I think, for over a year now. Mm. The Netflix release in the United States is our second window. Our first window release was on Stars, but I'll tell you what, it may, may as well have just been released because on April 1st when it hit Netflix, it exploded. 
it hit their top 10 list and, and uh, the tweets, it's trending. It's just, it's amazing what's happening. It's the power of Netflix. As you said in your intro, uh, you're doing very well on Netflix. Yes, indeed, as well on social media trending. Uh, you broke into the top 10, uh, at least for a few days, if not several, uh, since you, uh, the second window. So, uh, and it's had a knock on effect because even though it's been um, available here in the UK, we, many of us were sort of unaware and uh, now it's trending again. It may not, I don't know if it's broken into the top 10 yet here, but certainly it's making uh, a splash in the, in the local media, certainly in terms of the, uh, the, the newspapers. So um, maybe you could tell our listeners, and I don't know, sometimes I think for some of our films, I'm not, I'm not sure, what, should we say a spoiler alert? Should we tell people they should watch the film first? Um, I say yeah. that with the, at the same time, I think what we're going to, there, there's so much, in this uh, film that uh, just talking about the basics and the facts of the case are not necessarily going to give in, in other ways much away. Uh, but if you just to say to our listeners, if you want to don't want to have any surprises whatsoever and the film craft, you know, uh, very craftily uh, sort of slowly unveils, uh, you know, I would say personally, I think this is a true crime doc that takes you to, places that maybe are a bit unexpected when when some people sit down to watch a true crime doc and that's much appreciated but um with that big uh, warning alert there uh maybe sean you can tell our listeners who richard worshi jr well i was going to say is but certainly what was his reputation who who, who do people think richard worshi jr was i actually first heard about him in the 1980s just as as a kid yeah, I I believe that the lie that I heard, which was that there was some fifteen-year-old uh, white kid calling the shots for a bunch of inner-city, well-organized gangs in Detroit, and 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 th that is the lie. That's the legend mm -hmm. that was created by the newspaper, and in some ways, it was fed to the newspapers and to the local news by the police. Um, but you know how it works with, with television and news. If, if it gets numbers, they're going to keep going with it and following up on that story. So basically, this is a 15-year-old kid who had a reputation of being a, a huge drug dealer and a, a weight man, as they say, meaning he brought in kilos to Detroit, um, who uh, did run in these circles, but he wasn't really in charge of anything. And... He ended up uh, running afoul of some very powerful people who made it their mission to make sure he was locked up and died in prison. That was their goal. Mm. And uh, so that's, and he ended up, you know, I heard about him when I was 15 or 16. Uh, when I was 18 or 19, I heard that he had been incarcerated and I never heard another thing. And I was, you know, 25 years later, I hear he's still locked up. And I'm like, that couldn't be, not for a, nonviolent juvenile offense mm. and mm. he was indeed still locked up so we had just finished our movie a murder in the park and we were looking for something new to do and uh i thought well this is a another another jaw-dropping example of prosecutorial abuse so we that's why we we decided to to run with it well you you bring up a lot of subjects there that are all worth uh, talking about and hopefully we'll uh we will touch on a lot of these uh, over the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. But uh, I mean, I think your film, maybe we can start off with, uh, before discussing uh, uh, Richard Vorshi uh, 
further and, and this whole cir circumstances that you capture in your film. Uh, I mean, one thing that your film also does is, and maybe for some of our listeners who are younger or not from the U.S., I mean, what was Detroit like in the 1980s? I had forgotten um, <laughs> how bad it actually was. I didn't realize how bad it was. Uh, you know, in, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is pretty rough. And for us, the town that we always thought was crazier than Cleveland was Chicago. You yeah. know, that's, uh, there's still to this day, I mean, they have 30 murder weekends yeah. in Chicago. Um, so that was, and it was so corrupt and the leadership was so corrupt that, you know, we always thought that was the, the dirty town. This was an education for me. When I found out some of the things that we reveal in the film, uh, I mean, I, my jaw at the ground and, and, and uh, I learned as we made this, uh, nothing tops. I doubt there's any city that was more corrupt than the Detroit area in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. I mean, I will say I had a, a good college friend who was from Detroit. And so I had a bit, you know, he used to fill me in a little bit. Nothing. I, I agree. I, I did not realize. I mean, We've, many of us have seen the footage of how Detroit's, you know, falling has fallen apart, and the, the the flight away from the city and the population, you know, declining very quickly. But I was surprised. I I, I didn't wasn't aware um, of of how bad it was, and I thought thought you capture that well. But as you're saying, I mean, there's this, you know, we have uh, um, white boy Rick, uh, his moniker. Um, which he hates he, by the way well i can imagine and yeah. as you your film talks about really the worst thing to have is one of these catchy uh nicknames uh but uh his his legend was a gross exaggeration as you've already said um i mean supposed mastermind of the D detroit drug scene i mean that's almost in some ways and it's insult and form of racism to the real masterminds absolute it? it was absolute racism at the time because when it was presented to me it was like can you believe almost like, can you believe they needed a white guy? And that is totally racist. And, yeah. um, you know, but the funny thing is, you're right, it was nothing close to the truth, but he was sentenced as if it was, yeah, as if it were the truth. So that's, that's what was so crazy about this case. And so he's, what strikes me is he's caught in this no man's land, isn't he? So um, he's, a, we, he's an informant. Right, so he he rats on the on the drug gangs and sends this uh, Johnny Curry to jail and others. Uh, so they're after him, aren't they? Well, not now. No. You know, Rick called Johnny during our interview. He, oh, even he? Called, he even called the hitman during our interview. Which <laughs> we'll get to soon, I'm sure. But okay. no, he talked to those guys. Yeah, I, I'll tell you about the conversations it's gonna be when we get to that point, if you want. Yeah. yeah no. I, well, I mean, let's let's talk. Well. I mean, so, okay, let's get back. Let's, I'm not going to let go of that because that is very interesting. But I think certainly the feds and state law enforcement abandon him, right? They leave him out to, you know, the FBI wants to keep him quiet because they were exploiting a child uh, as an informant. He was like a f sort of a foot soldier on the uh, war on drugs. Is that fair enough to say? I think it's fair to say uh, Agent Groman denies that he ever used him for drug buys or that he sent him to Las Vegas. Um, but he says that that was the Detroit police and other agencies who did that. But, uh, you know, uh, I think that um, if you do some digging, you know, that's, I don't think everybody knew what everybody was doing 
at that point. Mm. And uh, yeah, he, he definitely was, was, was abused and was led down that direction. He may never have touched drugs were it yeah. not for the FBI. So, and I think you said is this web, you, you know, you, you have even graphics that show it, this web of different jurisdictions and law enforcement agencies and federal agencies all involved in this war on drugs. Um, and at some point there, they stop using him as an informant. And then he's kind of left on his own. And he's been in this world of, uh, as you said, probably wouldn't have touched drugs if it hadn't been for this uh, situation he had been in that uh, I guess his father kind of introduced him. They taught yeah. him a trade. Yeah. They taught him a trade and he was no longer an apprentice and they gave him tens of thousands of dollars to make drug buys. So he had good credit <laughs> because of their money. <laughs> so he just said, well, I, I know how to make a quick 50 grand this weekend. And uh, that's what he would do. I mean, the other guys are making millions and millions and right. millions. He wasn't at that level, but they, they set him up. They set him up. They franchised him, mm. you know, and they, yeah. and they, they abandoned him. Yes, they, they completely abandoned him because they, one day they came to their senses and said, oh, my God, what have we done? But, instead of, you know, and, and look, now you know, the, the FBI agents who were in the film are riddled with guilt. Mm. They, they, they came, they flew in at their own expense to do those interviews. And one and Greg Schwartz, uh, agent, the, the, the head agent in Detroit for a while, Greg Schwartz, I mean, he on his own dime and his own time has spent over a decade, maybe two decades trying to undo this wrong. And he came in at the tail end of it. That's but interesting. He was, I think he's the one who said stop. But he's dedicated his life to mm. freeing Richard Worshey Jr. So he, he, you know, he was riddled with guilt over what his organization had a hand in doing. And then he's also falling, and then also Richard is falling afoul of the Detroit establishment, right? So uh, yeah. Mayor Coleman Young. Um, so, uh, I mean, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. I'll, but tell, I, I'll I, tell you the story that we didn't put in the movie. Okay. Um, there was an operation to get Coleman Young. It was called Operation Backbone. Mm. They named it Operation Backbone. You know, the agent in our movie says, because you had some, had to have some guts to do these things. Yeah. But it was really because he thought the FBI were cowards. And they said, and they were debating whether they were, whether they were going to go after Marion Barry, I mean, uh, uh, Coleman Young, <laughs> because they didn't want another Marion Barry. Exactly. And that whole thing had just gone yeah. down. They're like, we can't go out targeting black mayors. And he's like, look, if he's dirty, he's dirty. And they're yeah. like, no, this, these are bad optics. It was the yeah. first President Bush. He didn't want it. Um, uh, I, I think it was his call. And um, so they, they, they actually kind of squelched the whole thing and, and, and you know, busted the, the corrupt officials, but not Coleman Young. They stopped short of Coleman Young deliberately. That's why it was called Operation Backbone, because he predicted they would have no backbone. It's actually an agent mocking his organization because they knew they wouldn't follow through. That's, that's really interesting. And an interesting, uh, honest slip of the tongue saying Marion Barry. Because well, well that, but that's, that was the reason I, I yeah. just, I changed the order. That was a slip. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I'm because, because Marion Barry actually, because I was, I mentioned it to my wife. My wife's a DC native. I lived in DC for a couple of years under Marion Barry. And, uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's quite. Uh, it it remind. I hadn't seen anything like it since uh, what little or interaction I had with the, uh, um, you know that 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 era of of Washington D.C. Um, but you've got Coleman Young. His niece is married to the drunk drug kingpin that we've made reference to already, Johnny Curry. I mean, it's uh, it's and quite. When he's a th- locked up. She's. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's moves on to Rick. She moves on to Rick, and Rick can can say, "Well, I maybe wasn't the smartest thing I did in my life, but I was only seventeen or whatever, however old he was." Said I was dating a movie star. Yeah, exactly. That was well put. You've got, I mean, this is amazing stuff. You got Gil Hill, who's uh, Eddie Murphy's foul-mouthed boss in Beverly Hills Cop, and actually in real life is the what was he head of homicide. He was the head of homicide, yeah. And the revelations that uh, the allegations, I mean, he's passed yeah. away and he can't defend himself. Okay? That's right. But, but uh, the allegations made against him um, are staggering. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and, I, and, and as you've said, allegations, I think you're very f- fair. You have people who say, look, I'm not aware of anything. I don't think some have not necessarily defended Coleman Young, the mayor, but said, look, I don't think he was... I thought it was just the people around him who were corrupt. So we don't yeah. really know the, the true answers for some of these things, but it's out there for people to make their own judgments. Um, so you've got, so Rich, you know, so obviously there's some people that want to see uh, Richard put away for a very long time, if not forever, I think, as you've already, already mentioned. There was this draconian law passed when, 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 Legislators didn't know what to do about crack cocaine. They did the only thing they could do in their chamber, which was create these insane sentencing guidelines. As if, as if someone who makes this decision is going to sit and weigh it out. You know, these, these you know, people who commit these crimes are acting impulsively. They're acting out of poverty. They're acting because they don't have the same moral standards as upstanding citizens and to think that uh, the notion that that they're going to say oh boy they raised the sentence i'm going to i'm going to stop making five thousand bucks a day and go get a job um is silly and they they seldom enforce those laws Uh, we bring up in the in the in the film that tim allen was Mm -hmm. prosecuted under those laws but told cracked a few jokes and the judge said, hey, you've got talent and sentenced him to a couple of years. And said, when you get out, I want you to try comedy. You know, uh, most people got yep. a break. And who do they, but who do they put the hammer down on? Uh, they put the hammer down on Richard Worshey Jr. And sentenced him to life as a, as a kid, you know, as a juvenile. Yeah, so uh, nonviolent crime. I mean, it's even declared, later declared unconstitutional, at least under Michigan law. It was an Eighth Amendment uh, violation. Yeah, uh, it's a cruel and unusual punishment violation. Yes. Yeah, and yet, even though it was then declared unconstitutional, he's not even seeing you know how, what in all those years because he's incarcerated for over thirty, uh, twenty-eight or so of those in in Michigan. He barely sees a, a parole board. But when the law, yeah, when the law was struck down, uh, he was supposed to be eligible for parole and have a hearing every five years. He had one hearing until until 2017. He had one hearing, and they rigged it. 
And the guys who went in and lied sat in front of our cameras and admitted that they went in and lied. Yeah. So, I mean, we prove it. Yeah. We try not to, when we make movies, we try not to, to just use shade. We, we try not to just insinuate. We try to have lockbox evidence mm. of, of everything we're, we're alleging. Okay. And I think, um, um, so, so what I, what's very interesting about this film is that, you know, some of these true crime films, it's all about trying to debunk a, um, um, you know, um, a case or a, a wrongful conviction. And I know you have experience with that, but uh, I mean, this is, there's no doubt that he was, you know, he was involved in these things and he got, um, he had, you know, he's um, had been dealing and we can, as the film talks about the reason why he got into dealing, but uh, but it's 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 interesting because it is in some ways even more entertaining than a lot of these other true crime docs because it's uh, I think because of the revelations that many of us were as we've already kind of touched on we're just completely unaware of that how someone could just get locked away and the key thrown away uh, so yeah. so easily. It wasn't a wrongful conviction movie; it was an oversentencing movie. And I'll put it to you like this. If, if, if the judge and jury never had known that Rick was put in business by the government and led down this path, his sentence should have been probably five to eight years. Mm. Had they known that the government did this, he probably would have given, been given a chance to reform, um, which the government should have done in the first place. His attorney says, why didn't they put him in a boarding school? And straighten yeah. his head out after they didn't even, you know, didn't even let him sleep at night so he could go to school, you know, which is another revelation. It's just insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those where you're just, uh, I mean, my jaw was just dropping. I mean, this, this, you know, 14, 15 year old kid, they're taking him out to nightclubs, having him finger or, uh, people, and then expecting him to be back at school at seven, eight in the the next morning and yeah that was one of the we try to drop a bomb about every 10 minutes when we make these things <laughs> keep everybody well, interested. Well, well for our listeners who haven't taken our advice or have not gone and watched this first before uh there is uh i, I think it's very fast move a fast-paced film i will say certainly certainly the beginning it just grabs you um i think at this stage uh maybe let's take an early uh break for our sponsor and we'll be uh Right back with uh, Sean Reck, director and producer of White Boy. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with director and producer Sean Reck of White Boy. Uh, second window of release, at least in the U.S., on Netflix at, from uh, April 1st of 2021. It's, uh, for many of us, we didn't realize it was, uh, had been there all along, for at least for about the better part of a year. Um, I want to continue talking about, if you don't mind, talking about Richard uh, Wershey Jr. Um, and maybe you can give us an update on him, because um, I've seen even on social media, you've had to come out there and say uh give updates on what you know because a lot of people this film was 
stops in 2017. A lot of people are curious to see what, what's happened to him. Um, news stories here in the, in the UK about, uh, you know, his, his situation. Uh, is there, uh, you know, so anything you want to say about uh, his situation now and what he's up to? Well, sure. I, I, and, and this is a spoiler alert, I, I suppose. Um, but, but you'll be, even knowing this, you'll be fully entertained watching the film. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we made it as a call to action film. We didn't think anything was going to change. Mm. So we wanted to spark outrage, showing certain facts and comparing what happened to other people who committed much more heinous crimes and what their sentences mm. were. And um, at the end of the movie, you know, the parole board, uh, I think what I did was I, I, I went to the Daily Mail in, in England and I gave them footage of the hitman. All right. Yeah. And uh, because I, I didn't want to do this in the U.S. because of certain certain laws. So I, I fed them uh, the story of Nathaniel Boone Craft saying mm. that the Detroit police ordered a hit on Richard Wurchie Jr. Yeah. Then Kevin Dietz, a reporter at WDIV in Detroit, could use them as the source mm. and run this story in Detroit. And as soon as he had that story prepared and asked the prosecutor for a comment, she would not comment on the fact that her mentor was accused and named as the person who ordered a hit on Richard Worshi. But then she said she that, but at the exact same time, she said, I will no longer oppose his parole. So we, we feel like the film had a little effect in that sense. And she, in fact, followed through and did not oppose his parole. And Rick was paroled, but because of another misstep during prison, actually couldn't be released. So people are given this wonderful moment at the end where he's paroled and you think, oh, we're about to see him walk out <laughs> like all of our other movies. <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden it says Richard Worshi is now serving time in Florida. Right. And his, his supporters continue trying to free him. And everybody's, and, and you know, there's a lot of tweets like, like, you know, I just broke my TV with the last card of whiteboard, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> and, and, and what happened was, you know, since we made an outrage film and since we made a call to action, people are like tweeting the president who couldn't affect this case because it was a state case that he yeah. was actually in for then. Yeah. And tweeting the governor of Michigan who had, would have no effect in Florida and tweeting the governor of Florida. But in fact, um, uh, several months ago, he actually was released. Yeah. Uh, from from Florida, and he is a, a free man now. Finally, a grandfather went in as a as a boy. Yeah, uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, that was just I couldn't believe that even whole element that you know they wouldn't even let him serve that. Uh, again, uh, you know, we won't go into details because uh, but another there was case. A reason. Yeah, there was a reason. There was a reason, but another, you know, they, yeah, exactly. Not let him serve it concurrently, but tacked it on at the end. So there he is. He finally gets parole and now he's got to serve another five years potentially uh, in Florida. I mean, how does it make you feel? Cause it is a call to action film. You've um, very committed to your, uh, to your cause and uh, what you just told us about the daily mail yet. Uh, here it is mission accomplished, if you will. And yet people are still, um, uh, drawn to this film must make you feel feel good about the film that you you created. 
Yeah, it's it's got a different purpose now. It's 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 a historical piece, isn't it? You know, yeah. a lot of people said this really brought them back to a lot of people in Wayne County, Michigan said this brought them back to the 80s. Mm. You know, some even nostalgically, you know, saying, boy, I forgot how fun it was back then. Oh, it shows God. you their mindset. You know. <laughs> exactly. You know, you learn a lot from 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 Twitter and, <laughs> and Instagram when you release a movie like this, you know. Yeah. Uh, before we, because I that does raise some more points I would like to discuss with you about these sort of films. But uh, you did mention that uh, you've you've mentioned Nathaniel Boonecroft, the uh, the hitman, uh, charged. I think not just charged, uh, convicted of thirty hits, I believe. Confessed, confessed, confessed to thirty murders. Confessed to thirty murders. Mm-hmm. Does less time than Richard, where she doesn't he? I think. Yeah. Let me uh, let me let me tell you what happened. Yeah. He uh, was doing all, all these hits for several drug gangs and, and, and for the Medellin cartel. Amazing. He, he was their hitman. They, they were the ones who demanded body parts, okay, as proof of hits. So uh, he was a prolific hitman. And what happened was there was one hit that, okay, so somebody killed his brother and he decided that was the end of him being a gangster. He, mm. he was apparently close with his brother and one of those gangs that he had worked for killed his brother and he went into the feds and told them who did it, mm. told them what he heard. And they said, look, we could get you right now. We know you killed so-and-so. And he was done with his life of crime. And he said, you know what? I'll, uh, this is the way it was explained to me. I, this may be slightly off, but I think this is what yeah. happened. They, uh, they said, okay, we're going to make you a deal. We're going to give you, I don't remember what it was, 10 years for that murder. But you have to do a disclosure sheet. And uh, as part of that, you have to tell us everything you know. And uh, we'll, we'll, that's part of signing this deal. So he signed the deal, agreed to the years, and in his disclosure, wrote down everything he knew, including the 30 people he killed. Oh, my God. And his lawyer went in. The, the prosecutors are like, the deal's off. The deal's off. We didn't know you could all these people. And he said, no, you have to stick to your deal. His attorney went in and fought, and the judge agreed with Nathaniel Kraft's attorney and said, no, you've got to hold to this deal. So he may come off like a simple man, but that was a pretty sophisticated way to beat all those charges. I mean, his interview is quite amazing. Um, I mean, he doesn't go into details about being a hitman, but in some ways, but I mean, just even, well, uh, I'll, maybe I'll leave it at there because we've, we've had a few spoiler alerts already, but I think uh, just uh, it's well... Uh, it's worth watching for many reasons, but I think that segment was, or segments, because it's interspersed through the film, are, uh, are quite incredible, actually. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, let me, let me tell you something, uh, just one funny story. Like, I guess it's funny, maybe it's sad, <laughs> but we decided, you know, Tom Powers, who programs Doc NYC and the Toronto Film Festival, Toronto yeah. International Film Festival, Tom wanted White Boy for Doc NYC. And we asked his permission to premiere it first at Freep, the, Freep, the Detroit Pre- Free Press Film mm. Festival. And they really 
did a first class job and we were in the Detroit Institute of Arts in a thousand feet seat theater and it sold out. And it was this gigantic, gigantic uh, showing of the movie and it was on opening day. We ended up winning the audience choice award, audience choice award for the Free Film Festival. But uh, two things about Nathaniel Boomcraft, who was in the audience. Nobody knew he was in the audience. So they're watching this thing. And about halfway through, somebody says something funny and you hear this. <laughs> I was in the front reading to do a, a panel with Chris Hansen. 1,000 heads turned with horror on their face saying, oh my God, that's the guy. And they turn around and they see Nathaniel Boonecraft, two rows from the back with about eight family members laughing his butt off at some very dark joke and yeah. everybody turned their heads and everybody looked different after that. But I want to tell you something else. Afterwards, picture like the steps that Rocky ran up in, you know, in a yeah. movie in Philadelphia, the front of the Detroit Institute of Art has like some steps like that. Uh, if I remember correctly, Nathaniel Boonecraft was on the steps taking selfies with people for an hour. Mm. He was the star of that movie. I want to make, make a scripted film about his life so badly, but uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's tough to work things out sometimes. I've still, I would still like to do it. He almost reminds me of some Hollywood actor, you know. Um, oh, 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 there are a couple of them yeah. who would be perfect. One, uh, Tiny Liston, I think, just passed away. He would have been, yeah. he would have been good. Believe me, I've been thinking about that. But uh, yeah. isn't it weird that you, the most likable character killed 30 people? What's, what's wrong with us? You know, but I, 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 he, he was the most, probably the most likable guy in the movie. You know, I don't, it's an interesting one. Uh, I should say entertaining. Uh, Entertain, yeah, maybe entertaining is better, but he's interesting. We don't need to get into theological discussion, but he's talking about, uh, I think towards the end there, he says, well, I know I'm going to hell, but, you know, he kind of, not you. I stopped the camera when he said that. Did you? And I said, um, we're making a movie about the gospel right now. I'm being educated. And I said, I just want you to know that that's not true. I want you to know that that's not true. You don't have to go to hell. Um, and uh, you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I had this similar thought to my, in my head as well. Um, mm-hmm. That's um, very interesting. Well, you mentioned too that uh, while you're interviewing him, Ricky uh, uh, Rich, Richard Worshi actually called him on it. Is that right? When you're interviewing Rich, him? Richard Worshi called Nathaniel Kraft during the interview. And it was like old chums week. Like they were just laughing. And he's like, it was like, sorry about that, man. Uh, he goes, there's no hit on you now. I don't give a crap, but I don't do that anymore. And it's cool. I have, I have no hard feelings. That was, that was an amazing moment. And, uh, but I'll tell you the more amazing moment was that Rick called Johnny Curry during his interview. And said, Johnny, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to get out eventually. I hope, I hope we don't have a problem. And Johnny said, Rick, the way I see it, that was a different life. And we both survived. Interesting. You know? And that's, that's what he said to him to put him at ease. He said, it was a different life. We both got through, you know, you were, you, you were a stupid kid. You didn't know what to do. And, um, 
And I, it, it sounded to me like he forgave them. It's interesting. Um, or that they forget, forgave each other. But I can't speak for, I can't yeah. speak for Rick. Well, it's almost like, um, it's almost like veterans of, an, of a war that were on opposing it's, sides. Yes, it's, it's, yeah. like when, yeah, okay. well, it's like when the, uh, the, the old timers go visit the Japanese guys on the islands. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, so uh, Richard's out. I mean, has he, has he benefited at all from like this? Uh, I mean, can he benefit from, you know, we know that this uh, scripted uh, Matthew McConaughey film came out uh, a couple of years ago that's uh, nominally about, it's based on his life, but. Yeah, uh, they, took, they took license with it. You yeah. know, it, Jan Demange and um, Scott Franklin and Scott Silver, the writer, he also wrote, uh, you know, the Joker movie. They're, these are big time guys. They came into our office and watched cuts of this and gave us notes. They were, they were awesome. They didn't see oh, us wow. as competition at all because they, they were filming that in Cleveland where we are. So they were, they were incredible partners and, uh, with us. We thanked them in the credits. And um, Jan Demange, who now English people would know him for producing Top Boy. Mm. Uh, he said, hey, you know, we're taking license. We have to make this entertainment. So if anybody says this isn't true to the story, I'm going to say, just watch Sean's doc. Yeah, I, said, okay. I said, cool. Yeah. Well, that's it. I think that's an interesting point because I've, uh, I've been privy to conversations where people are saying, well, I want to make this doc, but I know there's this uh, scripted narrative coming out, you know, are they, you know, but I, there's really no, there's no conflict there. Is there, if it's done right. I mean, no. you know, usually a doc precedes the scripted. Usually, um, you know, but I just, you know, they knew we weren't going to hurt them. Yeah. They, we, we weren't going to, we weren't going to hurt them. When you have Bell Pauly and Matthew McConaughey and yeah. Bruce Dern, I mean, you're, you know, that's a big, that was a big, that was a big deal. <laughs> and and the writers behind the Joker and stuff like that. Yeah. You're going right. to you're, Exactly. You're, well, and, and, you know, Scott Franklin yeah. is Darren Aronofsky's partner. These are, these are yeah. big, yeah. big people yeah. in the business. Yeah. Getting back to some of the your film um, and some of the themes you were actually touching on before we kind of I gladly digressed to talk about uh, um, some of these other characters. One thing that comes up, and I think it's this role of journalism in the justice system. I think it's something that even comes. I, I'm not going to take credit for this. I think it's in one of your bios, actually. But uh, that uh, maybe you could. Tell us a little bit about what your your experience having made these sort of films um, over the years. Um, and I think it's a subtle, often unexplored part of the genre about the role of journalism in the, in the justice system. Well, I'll tell I'll tell you the whole arc. The first movie we made was called A Murder in the Park, yeah. and we attempted to expose something called the innocence industry, which some some people describe as a cabal between attorneys who make an awful lot of money getting mm. people out and journalists who act as their PR machine. And we focused on Northwestern University at the time with the Anthony Porter case. That's what a murder mm. in the park is about. Mm. And the, you know, we found out that, you know, the guy who wrote the most about the case and called for the release, never read the police report and saw that there were other witnesses. And I realized that, that, Journalists sometimes lean so hard on their sources that they don't, if they have a couple wins with them, with other stories, they stop 
they stopped fact-checking. So mm -hmm. uh, we were critical of that. We were critical of the media's role, of the railroading of the guy we thought was innocent. And um, in Detroit, you know, it wasn't as egregious in Detroit because it, it was the police and other government people who were feeding bad info mm -hmm. to the media. So I'm not going to say it was as egregious as the Chicago situation we dealt with. And now, interestingly enough, if you don't mind, you know, we're making a 10-part docuseries that analyzes the murder of Teresa Halbach and the series Making a Murderer, we actually are making a docu-series about a docu-series. Um, and that was next on my list, by the way. Yeah, so and, yeah, and so feel free. So, so here's the here's the deal. I watched Making a Murderer. Making a Murderer helped our films. Making it because what everybody wanted more of, I watched it and loved it, okay? And right. I was outraged. Yes. And uh, you know, all of a sudden people all these lists were popping up. Uh, if you want to see more films like Making a Murder or Watch These, and we were on most of those lists with A Murder in the Park. So all of yeah. a sudden our TVOD sales are shooting up and mm. uh, my, you know, whatever the stupid star meter on IMDb is shooting up and, yeah, exactly. and, and all this, these yeah. things are happening. I'm like, wow, that, they really helped us, you know, and, and they broke a lot of filmmaking rules too, which I, I love that they broke. They had, mm. they had eight minute scenes, you know, yeah. I would never have any. A courtroom scene like that long and they just did it and it was like you know what i stayed good with the screen so they proved it could work yeah i love that they broke those rules mm. but here's the thing in the last 15 or 20 years what was our news media it has responded to the market and decided that they have to choose sides and you've got yes. the liberal media and you've got the conservative media so you know, not to be super self-important here, but I think that guys like you guys, guys like us, mm. and others, Tyler Meese, and other people you've interviewed on your show, uh, there are a thousand of us. I think we are filling the gap with deep dive, long form journalism. Yeah. Even if it's advocacy, as long as we're transparent about it being advocacy. Mm. But in making a murderer, as people will see in this series, wherever it ends up, because we haven't even shopped it yet, yeah. but it's almost done, you're gonna see how the truth was manipulated horribly. I mean, egregiously. Yeah. And we're gonna call on the filmmaking community to adopt the voluntary you know, code of conduct, code of ethical standards similar to those uh, you know, the, the attorneys and physicians and, uh, you know, journalists have to adhere to because I consider it long form journalism. A lot of people, there's a big debate out there. No, it's filmmaking. It's entertainment. Well, you can't entertain at the expense of people's lives. Yeah. And making a murderer destroyed people's lives. So it, we're just going to tell the whole story, but we're also going to look at the, we're going to, we're going to criticize you know, the filmmakers, to be honest with you, and show why, you know, we don't, we, we don't shade, we show very hard evidence. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to just start a discussion, hopefully. Okay. Um, so, so that's, that's the big thing. That's the project that, you know, there are 12 people here full time, six of them are working on that project and have been for four years. Um, so uh, th that's our, that's our gone with the wind.
Okay. You know, it'll be done close to the end of the year. But yeah, so everything we, you know, uh, you know, we would do some Christian films too. We did American Gospel, Christ Alone, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. That's sort of its own little division, okay? Yeah. But everything else, yeah, there's always an element of media analysis. And, and again, not to sign, sound too high-minded, but of, of correcting history and correcting the record. I, I agree. And I think that's, uh, I mean, if, speaking personally, I will say, uh, I, I, I find myself just often lost because, <laughs> as you say, there's medias now. If it was, maybe it was always slanted in different ways and then... Um, definitely had more of a rise of conservative media, but then it's become, well, one way of saying is it's become, some people said it's become actively partisan, but I think I like the way you say it. They, it's whether it's partisan or not, they definitely choose sides now. And then that, and then that narrative is the lens they, they see everything through. They choose sides and they preach to the choir. They are not changing hearts and minds. Exactly. They're, they're they have their echo chambers. Yep. Yeah. And so I, I have found that um, what I like uh, about meeting people like yourself and other great film documentary filmmakers, I sense, you know, I can, you could, you get in these discussions and I can sense, I, I pretty good idea of who he voted for and who she voted for and things like that. That I don't, I don't mind that. What I do find is that no, the, the good, the good filmmakers are not hacks. They, they go for, you know, it may, they may have their own political or so, uh, philosophical viewpoints on life, but when it comes to actually trying to get to the truth of things, um, I think we are all, as you say, trying to become the long-form journalists that are, that are lacking. Uh, right, but, but we can't betray that trust. And yeah. that's, why, that's why I'm worried for our yeah. industry and that's why we're making this piece. And, you know, it may be uh, as big as making a murder or it may be something they show at film school. I don't know. <laughs> but but it, it's, 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 believe me, it's, believe me, it's the, all, all 10 hours are as entertaining as White Boy when this thing comes out. Well, I think, I hope, so. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, one thing I was going to say, and you've already answered that, do you, I ask it, do you think true crime docs bear some blame? I mean, um, the one thing I have now, I did watch, I've watched Making a Murder. And, and this is not about, as you said, you really like, you know, uh, there's a reason I watched it. If I didn't, didn't find right. it enjoyable, I wouldn't have watched more than a couple episodes. Uh, but, and now try to get into sec the second season. Um, I'm a little bit late to it, but it, it seemed to me even there, the filmmakers realized even in that, that, in that first uh, uh, season that, uh, it seems sometimes you realize, well, you know, my wife commented, well, what about the victims here? You know, there's a lot of stuff that seemed to get kind of lost by the wayside. And I guess that's what your film, that's what, uh, well, you were calling it convicting a murderer, but is it just going to be called convicting? It's now? called convicting because uh, they convicted someone too, the yeah. filmmakers. Okay. So I'll let that out of the bag. It's, it's, and, and the public convicted other people in that, in that, uh, in, yeah. in, you know, as a result, mm. by the way, if you go and there are so many Redditors who spend so many hours of their lives on this Stephen Avery, what yeah. they perceive as an injustice. Okay. If you go on there, 99% of the arguments that they make 
we're not in the film. This is like newly discovered stuff. Mm. This is like if you watch Don't F with Cat, how it took yeah. on a life of its own, or there was another documentary about the Boston Marathon bombings and what happened yeah. on Reddit. You know, it's it's like that. It took on a life of its own. They've already actually discredited most of what was in Making a Murderer, that community. They have a list of rules. It's like, we already know the blood vial was irrelevant. We already know mm. this and that. Like, mm. so they, it's like, we hear the things we accept. You know, almost like in a lawsuit, the declarations that both both sides are willing to agree on, you know, so they, they know that the, 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 the yeah. most of the points brought up in the, in the original series aren't valid anymore, but it still set them down this path. That's part of what we're, I mean, we're talking to group psychologists, like what, what's up? And we've got the stories of several people who like, I mean, their marriages were at stake over their obsession with this case. So we've got human stories. We've got this analysis of the media. Uh, we've got this analysis of the filmmaking. And, uh, and then we've got the, the actual facts of the case that were left out. And they're going to hear from all the people who did not do interviews in the original Making a Murderer. That's, that sounds really interesting. And also, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you one last question. So has supposedly someone else confessed to the Hallback murder? Uh, that's something that came out supposedly in Newsweek. And yeah, a guy can a guy confessed to me. Okay, uh, yes, he confessed to the Hallbach murder, and his confession was ridiculous. Okay, um, he was the same person who said Stephen Avery confessed to him. So we now know he's a liar, at least on one of those occasions. <laughs> okay, so his credibility is gone. All right, uh, we were going to mention. We're, I mean, we'll we'll mention because it was. It's a beat, okay, that we yeah. got this thing. But the guy, he did that right after Stephen's attorney offered a reward. So mm-hmm. what he was trying to do was get his wife the reward by confessing. That's my hypothesis, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So he, was, he set it up to try and get his wife the reward by confessing because he was never going to get out because he was a convicted murderer. Uh, so th- that ended up being, being bogus. We didn't know how much credibility there was, but yes, did we use it to did we use it to get some attention? I'm afraid we did. Um, uh, it's, it's part of this business. Yeah. Um, speaking about getting attention and maybe getting back to uh, to White Boy, um, why did it take so long for Netflix to pick to pick this up? Um, I'll, I'll, you guys, I mean, I. I'm assuming a lot of filmmakers watch your program too. So sorry to the general public for this shop talk. Um, but, but I'll, I'll just tell you guys, since you're filmmakers, we, it was, yeah. we thought, we thought it would be picked up as a Netflix original. Okay. Mm. Our agents, submarine entertainment, uh, proposed it from what I understand. Yeah. And they, they were considering it. And then the whole industry was shaken up with something that happened at Amazon where they just stopped buying for about six months. And then Netflix really didn't have any competition at the time. Interesting. And they weren't in any hurry to do anything. And, 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 they, and they basically, you know, we make everything on spec and then sell it. So it's not like yeah. it would have been a co-production. So they basically passed on it and said, maybe we'll license it later. I was really frustrated. So we went to an aggregator. We didn't even do any deals. I self-released. Uh, I self-released, uh, we were number one on iTunes and, mm. you know, uh, trending a little bit back then in 2017. So we squeezed the lemon there trying to get our, our budget back mm. and succeeded. 
And then um, all of a sudden, a submarine called and said, Stars wants it for the first hmm. window. So, and I did the Stars deal. And then my aggregator, Nick Sava at Giant, says, Netflix wants it. I said, I just did a Stars deal. And he said, Okay, they'll take the second window. So, um, you know, second window pays a lot less. I, I really wish mm. the first window would have been on Netflix, but thanks to stars for, for airing it, um, mm. for that 18 months. Uh, but as soon as it was off stars, that's when it hit Netflix. But honestly, this is like, it was just released because the, the, the difference is so profound. Um, when it hit Netflix, it's just, that's, you can't argue that it's, it's the most ubiquitous network with the most eyeballs in the world. Well, I think in, uh, well, there's a great Ricky Gervais uh, bit from the Golden Globes a couple years ago when he basically said, shouldn't we just give everything, all the awards to Netflix? Yeah. And, and I love watching through. those. I watched the culmination of all of his openings. Yeah, I love it. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think we're all going to talk a little, because sh- we do a little bit of shop talk. And then uh, I do want to get back to some of the issue, you know, a few more issues of the film. Uh, but uh, uh, it's even said in your official bio, your advocate for self-distribution, but all of his films have eventually been licensed to major streaming platforms and networks worldwide. Maybe you can, could you explain and expound on that a little bit? Um, it, it started with White Boy. I was so frustrated that Netflix wasn't going to pick it up mm. that I said, you know, I don't trust this process. I don't trust the bundling process. If an aggregator, and I love submarine and i love giant interactive that's our agents mm-hmm. and our aggregators and i love cineflix our foreign agents they're all awesome yeah. and great to deal with ifc was great to deal with on our first show okay so i'm not saying this ever happened to us but i worry because a lot of these companies are owners of some of the films they're repping okay mm-hmm. they're owners they're executive producers of some of the films so when they they, they bring a package of 15 films and Netflix says, well, okay, we'll give you 30 million bucks or without 10 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They get to decide the tent poles and they can pick their own and say, look, these are the things that carried the deal. They happen to be the things that they own. So right. no, we're not splitting this evenly. You're going to get X. Yeah. And yeah. because so many of us documentary filmmakers act like, uh, we're so desperate for the attention. Uh, you know, we, we say yes to the first offer. We've got to stop doing that. So I'm an advocate for self-distribution because before we didn't have anywhere else to go. Now we have an option. So it's like, no, we can just have a relationship with the viewer. And if, and if you're PR savvy, which we've learned to be, um, and you can get the word out about your project, people will pay the four bucks mm. to rent an entertaining movie. Or... Now with, you know, AVOD, you know, they'll, they'll sit through a few ads to watch your movie and you can, and you can get monetized that way. Yeah. So it's, I just love having a backup plan. I know that if I don't get the right offer for convicted, we have a backup plan. Nobody has to buy it and it will be in almost every home in the world. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what the plan is, but we've always had that backup. <laughs> but we've never spreaded it. Yeah. We're going to offer it to Netflix first because it's kind of their brand, right? So we'll yeah. offer it to them. And then if they don't want it, cool. Uh, others have reached out wanting it, but they're big players. So that's, we, we didn't make any, we didn't even send them a clip yet. So, mm. um, but, but I'm an advocate for self-distribution. So 
whoever we're dealing with knows we have other options. And, and you can, you know, we made this Christian film, American Gospel, Christ Alone. My creative director is a, a devout Christian with a very straight walk who believes in a, a specific, and I, as I do, although I'm a really lousy example of a Christian, but he believes in a specific form of reformed Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he, ha- he went through a process of learning and unlearning some what he considered errors. And we made this movie called American Gospel, and everybody kind of were like, yeah, you know, give it the pure flicks. And I was, <laughs> you know, I was like, no, this, this could, this, we could do something with this, I think. I didn't know what it would do. He, he asked me if, if I would make that film for, if, you know, he made the film. It's, it was all his work, and yeah. we just paid for it, okay? But I didn't know what it would do. I thought it was almost like a donation to thank him for being such a loyal guy who started as our first, first intern. Right. Now, now he could go to Hollywood any day he wanted. Yeah. yeah. And American Gospel comes out. And I, it, it may be the highest grossing independent self-released doc in history. I mean, it's millions of dollars have, has been grossed on this thing that I thought was a throwaway. So much mm-hmm. so that we have a sequel that came out afterwards. It's a success. Yeah. We have two more coming into this year. And we started a streaming network called Watch AGTV that is now profitable just from, from that endeavor. So we didn't need anybody. And guess who, guess who licensed American Gospel? Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. 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 So like even they saw that, that there was kind of an audience for this. So I, I'm not to sound cocky, but it's just like they, they, I, I, they, they treat you like you work at Starbucks and that you're going to get excited about in advance. That's one third of what you paid to make the film. And I, yeah. I, I refuse to do it. I, and I think we should all refuse to do it. I, I sound like a union leader, but I mean, we really, <laughs> we have to stop giving our work away. Yeah. I think that's the, uh, that's always this, uh, well, it's in a lot of creative industries, but I think that's a very good point. It's a, it's, it's well, well taken in terms of, um, what we can, you know, filmmakers can do in terms of uh, making sure they uh, look. It's not about maximizing profit, but just to get what your your just desserts, basically. Well, we got you yeah. got you have you got our job. That's yeah. our job. We have to yeah. be paid for what we do. Yeah. You know, don't don't tell us to get a grant and put it on PBS. No, mm. no. I mean, well, I love PBS, but just you know, we have we want to hit the market. We yeah. choose marketable subjects. Yeah. I'll be honest, you know, I have to make sure the story's catchy. You know, can't, I'm not going to make a documentary on the manufacturing of curtains in 1880. <laughs> I don't know where he's going to watch it. Exactly. Well, I mean, unless you find a very compelling uh, angle on that. But uh, right. I right. think, uh, but I mean, I think it's a, I mean, I'm relatively new to this this industry. But one thing that struck me, every time I would have conversations with film, the filmmakers in the documentary space, they're always like, well, no one gets rich from making documentaries. And I, yeah, okay, fine. I, I get I that. I plan but, on it. I haven't yet, but I plan on it. <laughs> but I think it becomes a bit self-defeating if you're not thinking in terms of at least, listen, you know. Netflix yesterday paid $30 million for a docu-series made by two guys who produce rap videos because they had access to Kanye West for 20 years. It'd be $30 million for, I think, an eight-parter, okay? Wow. You, can, you can get rich in the documentary business if you have the right access, if you pick the right stories, and of course, if you have production values, you can't make a piece of garbage. 
Yeah. Well, Sean, I think I must say we're trying to we're kind of getting to the end of our um, uh, our time together, and un- un- unfortunately, at least certainly for me. Um, I just uh, before we go uh, and before I ask you, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what's next in line for you in uh, Transition Studios. But uh, in terms of uh, White Boy, I mean, uh, maybe we leave it there with, uh, you know, what do you want its legacy to be? What is it? I mean, you've now done a f- a, more than a few of these. Um, or is it, does it have anything to say about what needs to happen with the uh, criminal justice system in the U.S. and what can be done? There are a lot of other movies uh, with this goal, uh, but we're, we're joining the chorus that says, don't always trust the government and don't always trust the media. Do your own investigating and vet your sources. That's, that's the message. I think that's a good way to end on that point. And then the one last thing I will ask you is what is next? Besides, uh, uh, well, I think you've already said you've got convicting, you've got some sequels to American Gospel. Anything else? Uh, yeah, we do. We, because another way we bootstrap and save money is rather than gigging everybody out on day rates, we just, they're here full time. We pay salaries. So we have to have, because there are peaks and valleys in production and post-production, we always have to have multiple projects going. So we've kind of settled at always having either five going at a time, either movies or series. Interesting. So it's very odd. Six, six projects are all ending this fall. So wow. we're going we're gonna to be releasing uh, a series on the murder of the nuns in El Salvador in 1980. Uh, two New York and two Cleveland nuns were murdered. In El Salvador, and it's and it's a crazy story, and that's called that's we believe the work the working title Salvador, and that'll probably stick. Mm. Uh, we've got a movie about a girl in Indiana University who went missing ten years ago. She was from New York City. Uh, she was a young, wealthy, from a wealthy family, and all the suspects in the case are young people from wealthy families, and it seems like there might be a a bit of a cover-up or a possible conspiracy going on. We're going to examine that. That's called Missing Lauren Spear. Okay. We've got the two gospel films, and we've got an unbelievable story called Wrong Cat, uh, which is a docuseries that we're going to finish up, which is about the longest wrongful conviction in U.S. history with tentacles. This case has tentacles that go all the way back to the murder, the execution of Fred Hampton, and his bodyguard, Mark Clark, in Chicago in 1969. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. That's uh, quite impressive and much appreciated because the number of times I get filmmakers to tell me, well, I really can't tell you what what we're working on next. Uh, Uh, Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, Thank you. And really, really nice to meet you and get to, to know your stuff a bit better and to find out more about you and the and the film in question, which is uh, White Boy and also uh, Transition Studios uh, there in Cleveland. So if we haven't scared you off when one of those uh, next projects drops, we'd love to have you uh, on again. Definitely. I'll be happy to be on. So I want to thank uh, Sean Reck again, the uh, producer and director of White Boy, which is streaming on Netflix worldwide. Uh, If you have any questions regarding how you can become a documentary director and producer like Sean Reck or other roles in the industry, I recommend you check out careersinfilm.com to learn more about careers in the film industry. 
want to give a shout out to our engineer, Freddie Besbrode, and the rest of the team. This is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. And as always, a big thanks to Nevena Paunovich, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Sean onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.